1: helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. This episode is a very special milestone in the life of Say It Skillfully. It is the 100th radio show. Yay! As many of you know, I didn't speak English until I was five. Interacting with people was not a forte of mine early on. So for you tuning in, know that you and those around you can become much more skillful to be who you are and say what needs to be said. And I am here to help you do just that. I am ecstatic to have the perfect guest joining me today. It is only with his inspiration and guidance that Say It Skillfully was born. He's been renowned As world's number one executive coach, having worked with over 200 major CEOs and their management teams and top leadership thinker, his influence on the field of management cannot be overstated. A New York Times number one bestselling author, he's written or edited 43 books, selling over two and a half million copies, translated into 32 languages and bestsellers in 12 different countries. Amazon recently recognized the 100 best leadership and success books ever written and included his books, Triggers, and What Got You Here Won't Get You There. He is the only living author with two books on the list. Not least, he is an adoring husband and proud parent, grandparent, a beloved friend and trusted confidant to countless amazing souls on this planet. I am eternally grateful for his friendship, mentorship, and love. And beyond, honored that the one and only Marshall Goldsmith is joining us. Marshall, welcome to say it skillfully.
2: Oh, I'm very honored to be with you. You're a wonderful friend, a great person, and I love what you're doing. I love your show, and I love your work.
1: I'm grateful for you. It is all because of you. And you know, Marshall, I was I w- went to your site, and it, there is literally so much already out there in the universe on you. I mean, countless podcasts, interviews, articles. My goodness, you're featured in a New Yorker profile, The Better Boss, and a documentary movie, The Earned Life. <laughs> so rather than have you chronicle growing up in Valley Station, Kentucky, with a colorful upbringing, then earning an undergrad degree in mathematical, mathematical economics, not to your MBA from Indiana University's Kelley School of Business, and then PhD from UCLA's Anderson School and School of Management, where I too was a Bruin for business school, I thought we would explore some other areas and give listeners a chance to get to know you in a different way. Then we will, of course, get to what you're working on now. Are you game for that?
2: I'm ready for anything.
1: Okay, so this is so exciting. Marshall, you've been married 47 years to your dear wife, Lida. How did you first meet
2: Oh, we met Lida, and I was at a party, and I was just trying to pick her up for not particularly noble purposes. And uh, so I did get to meet her. And then I noticed that this one big guy was kind of hovering around her and kind of had his sort of pinned her against the wall. And uh, oddly enough, um, I knew the guy's brother, and this woman came up and had told Lida this is a very strange story that this guy hits women. So Lida is very uncomfortable. So I could see she was uncomfortable. So I walked over, tapped the guy on the shoulder. I knew his brother. And I said, George, would you quit bothering my wife? Now, I never met Lida, but five minutes before in my life, I said, would you quit bothering my wife? He goes, oh, man, I'm sorry. I didn't know it was your wife. She looked at are you his wife? She goes, yes, I am. So <laughs> that's how we met. And ironically, she ended up being my wife.
1: Oh, my God. Best line ever. I have the biggest smile. That is awesome.
2: Well, sometimes it works.
1: So he, he bugged off. Okay. And then yeah. there you were. And did you talk for the rest of the party? Did you ask her yeah, out? Yeah,
2: that was it. I mean, I got to be the hero, so it was all good.
1: Wow. And how long before you actually got married? Oh, about a year, year and a half after that, we got married. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, she's very dear. Uh, to Share with listeners. What do you most appreciate about appreciate about her?
2: Um, well, she's a very kind person, you've met her before, she's very kind, she's uh, not judgmental and she has a lot of strengths in areas where uh, I have weaknesses.
1: Ah, so it's a nice, uh, it's a really a nice union. So, you know, I, I think sometimes people think it's very glamorous working together. Um, I know you had a very fruitful business partnership. Would you share with us what it was like in the early days working together?
2: Well, you know, we didn't work together too much in the earlier days. This has happened only probably in the last 10 or 15 years. Basically, working together is fine because Lida is a PhD psychologist, but should have been an accountant. She's very good with numbers, with uh, all of the business side of the business, which I'm very inept. And so basically, she manages everything. Uh, I was thinking of myself as I have a very deep yet narrow area of expertise. so outside of what I know, which is I know a lot about a little I don't know much of anything. so she basically manages everything. she also manages the family. Uh, unfortunately, both of my children have a genetic defect. I, I'm their father so they inherited most of my bad qualities. So she not only has to manage me, she has to manage me uh, my daughter Kelly and, and my son. <laughs> <Brian>. <laughs> So she manages everything.
1: Well, I know you were on the go. So when she's managing the whole family, were there, were there some tough times? I mean, was it ever, you know, really rocky for you in the family life?
2: Not so much. I always liked being married, so I, I never had any desire to be unmarried. Uh, I did ask my kids, uh, you know, what can I do to be a better father? And my daughter Kelly was 11. She said, Daddy, you travel a lot. But that's not what bothers me. What bothers me is the way you act when you come home. You talk on the phone. You watch the sports. You don't pay much attention to me. And she said one time it was Saturday and I wanted to go to my friend's house and Mommy did let me go. I had to spend time with you. And now and then you didn't spend any time with me. And she said that wasn't right. So what could I say? I'm just, you know I'm sorry. I'd do better. So I started keeping track of how many days I could spend four hours with my family. 1991, 92 days. 1992, 110. 1993, 131. And 1994, 135. I made more money the year I spent 135 days, four hours with my family than the year I spent 20 days. Uh, And I learned that the San Diego Chargers football team don't care about me. Now, it's January 1, 1995. They're both teenagers, so I'm all all proud. said, kids, look, 135 days, four hours with daddy. What goal this year? About 150. They both go, no, 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 no. Too much, too much, too much. They both voted for a massive cutback of daddy. So I I learned a good lesson with kids. When they're little, it's important to do this because they need us. And they get old, we need them. And I still talk to my kids every day. So I, I talk to them almost every day.
1: Oh, that's spectacular. What was the best part of being a dad for you?
2: I, you know, I like my, I just like my kids. So um, (laughs) the best part is I'm lucky. I'm lucky that, you know, I mean, some people have hideous kids. They're not bad parents necessarily, but they just don't get along with their kids. I like my kids. They're both very interesting people. And, uh, you know, we have good relationship and we we just say we talk every day. (laughs) That's awesome.
1: Um, anything you'd like to uh, to share about being a grandparent, the best part about being a grandparent?
2: I uh, I really like being a grandparent because it's, it's all stereotypical stories are true that, you know, much better than having kids as grandkids. You show up, you have fun. I have costumes. I have a Mickey Mouse costume. I have Donald Duck. I have Yogi the beer. So I dress up in costumes, play with them, have fun, and leave. <laughs>
1: not folks who know marshall is so fabulous he's like diapers no this no discipline no i'm here to have fun with my grandkids i love it
2: oh that's, that's it that's it yeah yeah i so, don't like i don't do chores So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh i love it uh okay so um Uh, From a spirituality standpoint, you were raised a Southern Baptist in Kentucky, and now you are a Buddhist, which is a big part of your coaching philosophy. So how did you find your way to this spirituality?
2: Well, I didn't become a Buddhist because I was converted to Buddhism as such. I became a Buddhist because it represented what I believed anyway. And so when I was about 19, I was studying religion, philosophy, and I studied Buddhism, and I just liked the Buddhist philosophy. When someone says they're a Buddhist, it doesn't really tell you very much because there's so many schools of Buddhism. Buddha said, only do what I teach if it works for you. If it doesn't work for you, don't do it. So there are many, many interpretations of Buddhism. Uh, My school of Buddhism is a simple school. Uh, Buddha was brought up very rich, and he was protected from life. And his father thought he could be happy if he only had more and more. And then he was able to sneak outside of a bubble three times. And what he learned, the first time he learned, people get old. You have all the money in the world, you get old. Two, second time, people get sick and three people die. He thought, well, that kind of sucks. You get old, you get sick and you die. No matter how much money you have. So Buddha left. Then he tried to be happy with less. He starved himself basically and tried to be happy with nothing. And that didn't work either. He finally learned you can never be happy with more and you can never be happy with less. It's only one thing you can never be happy with what you have. There's only one time you can ever be happy. Now, it's only one place you can ever be happy here. And to me, that is kind of the essence of at least my school of Buddhist thought. And it's very non Western. In the West, we're just totally brought up with a culture that reinforces the great Western art form. The great Western art form sounds like this there's a person, And that person is sad and they spend money and they buy a product and they become happy. This is called a commercial. I'm sure you may have seen two or three of these in your life. We are inundated with this message day after day after day after day after day. The great Western disease is I'll be happy when. When I get the money status, BMW, condominium, when I get this stuff, I'll be happy when. And the basic essence of Buddhism is no, you won't. You'll be happy now, or you're probably not going to be happy at all. Be
1: happy now and here.
2: That's about it.
1: So I think about this, um, this, this notion of self awareness tied to this, and uh, and it is very key to success, right? The most successful people are very self aware, and it's it strikes me as you you just always are. So was there a time you weren't self aware? What what helped you? gain the level of self-awareness that you have, Marshall?
2: Uh, you know, I'm not sure I'm actually that self-aware. Uh, on the other hand, yeah, when I was growing up, I would say it was much more intense and I was much less likely to accept life for what it is. And, you know, I kind of was the minister of truth when I was young. And then as I've grown older, I realize that different people have different views and philosophies and then that's perfectly okay. And Nobody made me God this week. And so I think I've become less intense, less judgmental, happier, and uh, eh, less of a need to prove I'm right.
1: So who along the way has given you the tough stuff? You know, if you were, you know, Mr. Be It Right or, um, you know, out of school, who kept you in line?
2: Well, I can tell you a couple of stories that were most impactful for me. One of them was I was at UCLA. I was in encounter groups eight hours a day for two days a week uh, for about six months. So I'm very familiar with getting feedback and how do you feel and that kind of stuff. And I was in one group and it was led by old Dr. Tannenbaum, who was a brilliant man. He invented the term sensitivity training. He was a very deep guy. and, And we were encouraged to talk about whatever we wanted to talk about. So I talked about people in Los Angeles, they're so screwed up, they wear these $85 sequin blue jeans, they're plastic and materialistic, and they drive $200,000 cars, and all they care about is impressing others. So I spent three weeks babbling on about people in Los Angeles, of course, given my background from Valley Station, Kentucky, that made me the world authority on everyone in Los Angeles. So after about three weeks to listen to me babble on, old Dr. Tanamom looks at me, scratches his beard and he says, Marshall, who are you talking to? I said, I don't know. I guess I'm talking to everybody. He says, Well, who in the group specifically are you talking to? I said, I guess everybody. He said, I don't know if you know this. Every time you've spoken, you've looked at only one person. You shared all these reflections with only one person. Who is that person? I thought about it. I said, Good question. I guess that would be you. He said, Well, why me? There are 10 other people here. I said, I know, you know, Dr. Tannenbaum, I think a person with your deep educational background can understand the true significance of what I'm saying and how screwed up it is just to try to impress people all the time. He said, well, is there any chance for the last three weeks, all you've been doing is trying to impress me? I said, well, no. I said, I'm very disappointed. I said, I think you've missed the significance of everything I've said. I've just been pointing out how screwed up it is to impress people. He looks at me and he goes, I think I understand. I look around the room, I see all these 10 heads shaking. I hated old Dr. Tannenbaum's guts for six months. Six months later, I said, thank you, old Dr. Tannenbaum, you just taught me a great lesson of life. Oh, that, that story is my job. You've seen me do this many times. I deal with people and oftentimes they don't want to hear what I have to say. And I say, well, this is it. This is the way you're seen in the world and you have a choice. Do you want to deal with this or not? And what I learned is, it's very easy to see our problems in everybody else. It's very difficult to see our problems in the mirror. So one of my great teachers was at UCLA days, old Dr. Tannenbaum, all those hours and hours. I spent years, I spent basically in the kind of self-reflection stuff was, they don't do that much anymore, but it's very valuable. Then another great teacher I had was Paul Hersey. And, you know, I met him and I just followed him around, learned how to do what he did. He was a great teacher. And one day he got double booked. and said, you know what I do? I said, I don't know. He said, I'll pay $1,000 for a day. I was making $15,000 for a year. I said, I'll try. I did a program for the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company in New York. And they were totally pissed off when I showed up. But guess what? I got ranked number one of all teachers. So then they were happy. They called him back and said, well, we were happy. This guy was good. Send him again. He said, do you want to do this again? I used a Kentucky phrase. Does it bear shit in the woods? thousand bucks a day. I'm making 15,000 bucks a year. I'll do this again. Well, that's how I got into this business. And then maybe a year or so later, he called me in and he said, you're making too much money because I was just selling days like a maniac. You're making too much money. You're running around like a chicken with your head cut off. You're never going to be who you could be. You're not doing writing. You're not doing thinking. And he was right. It was just great coaching on his part. And then I'd say other people that have helped me or some of them you've met, Francis Hesselbein, who's just an inspirational role model, Alan Mulally, and then Dr. Jim Kim, who saved 20 million lives. And then, you know, just some other great Peter Drucker. I've been on the board of the Peter Drucker Foundation what was for 10 years and just a great teacher. So I feel I've been very blessed. I mean, Paul Hersey had an old saying, he said, it's easy to look tall if you stand on the shoulders of a giant. Well, I was very fortunate to be able to Stand on the shoulders of many giants.
1: Wow, that is really fabulous. Um, we are grateful for Dr. Pan- Tannenbaum. Um you know, you've mentioned some of these really, really extraordinary people um, who I've also had the pleasure of uh, of knowing and learning from. You know, I imagine there are some un- unsung heroes in your journey, you know, people neither famous nor well-to- do, but uh, hugely, impactful?
2: Uh, A few of those, perhaps? Yeah, I was uh, 14. I was back in uh, Valley Station, and we were very poor. Uh, So, my father had this idiot idea women women shouldn't work. My mother actually went to college for two years and was a teacher, but of course, she didn't work, so we get to be poor. So, the bad news is we were poor, but the good news is all of her school teacher energy was devoted to me, so I know how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide before I went to school. So, I got off to a big big head start in life and then um, when I'm 14 uh, there was this guy Dennis Mudd our roof started leaking. and so Dad hires Dennis Mudd to fix the roof and we were very poor so Dad says, we'll have me help Dennis Mudd to save same on some of the expenses. So I'm the assistant roofer here, and, and I, you know, I don't like really think about roofing, but it was hot, and hard work. And Dennis Mudd is very dedicated in trying to teach me things and wants to build a nice roof for my father. And then we got done, and then you know, Dennis Mudd, who was a very poor man, looked at my father. His name is Bill. He said, Bill, I want you to inspect the roof. He said, if this roof is of high quality, pay me, and if it's not of high quality, it's all free. Uh, I, I thought about Dennis Mudd, and I thought, this guy's got class. He was poor. He needed the money, yet he wasn't cheap, and he had a lot of dignity. I thought, you know, I want to be like him when I grow up. And I came up with this idea of pay-for-results coaching that I did for many, many years. I only get paid if my clients get better. And that inspiration was from Dennis Mudd, because I always thought I wanted to be like him when I grew up, because I admired how much integrity he had. And I never really thought I had as much integrity as him, because... If I don't get paid, my life goes on. Dennis Mudd didn't get paid. He was hungry. He needed the money, yet he still had dignity. So I, you know, I had a great deal of respect for him. I, I told that story on a webcast once, and some guy listening in sent me an email. He said he became Small Business Person of the Year in Kentucky. And he said Dennis Mudd, after he quit putting on the roof, was a school bus driver. And he said after school, every day he would talk to this kid and try to help him. And you know he came very successful. So sometimes your inspiration doesn't have to have a PhD.
1: That is really, really fabulous. You know, Marshall, you men- you mentioned earlier. You know, you've got this um, deep, narrow expertise. And sometimes I think it's hard for people to get a sense of what their sweet spot really is. And was just that was that really obvious to you, or were you ever venturing out in areas that you really weren't? good at and you know i think if people could perhaps judge themselves like oh i'm not this i'm not that so i I should be good at that you seem very zen with kind of oh this
2: is never obvious there was no field i mean obviously (laughs) did i want to go into this field there was no this there was no feel i made this stuff up i mean i'm working with a guy who's the ceo of a company after i work with paul hersey and we came up with an idea for feedback. And then he said, I got this kid working for us, young, smart, highly educated, arrogant jerk. He said, it'd be worth a fortune to me if I could change this kid. So I heard fortune again. I said, maybe I can help him. He said, I doubt it. And that's what I came up with my idea. So I'll work with him for a year for you. It's better pay me. If you don't it better, it's all free. He said, so there was nothing called executive coaching. There was no field of coaching. This is all just stuff I made up. And, you know, so did I plan on doing this as a kid? No, not really. There was no this. I just kind of made this up. And so one thing I always feel like is, you know, anything that's creative, you just make up. If you didn't just make it up, it's not really that creative. So a lot of my what I do is pretty much stuff I've made up. I mean, the 100 coaches, I made it up. Uh, most of the things you've ever seen me do, where do they come from? Just made them up.
1: <laughs> oh, it just it just all comes together. And it is. has got to be some divine intervention up there. Um, the relationship with money when you grow up poor and then you have plenty, I'm just wondering, was there a point where you were like, oh my gosh, fast red cars, you know, spend it all, or were you a saver? Did Lida step in, uh, talk a little bit about your relationship with money.
2: No, Lida is the one who manages all of the money to start with, but I set a goal for myself many, many years ago. I said, I need to make X million dollars when I make that much money. that's okay. And I did. And Lida reminded me, she said, you said that's what you needed to make. And that was a long time ago. I made a bunch more than that, but I decided after I made that, I'm declaring victory. So that was it. Snap,
1: snap. So easy for you. I love it. Um, okay. So let's segue here because I would be remiss, you know, you've been named number one executive coach. Now, you know, uh, a little bit of why, um, but I do want to make sure we share some of your gems for listeners to consider in their own development. And there are just like oodles of learnings. But if you could pick maybe three areas that you'd love to share with folks for their consideration as they navigate the workplace and life
2: Let me give you a couple. The first one is, how did I get to be number one executive coach? Well, my friend, Alan Malali, who you've met, is just an amazing human being, CEO of the Air in the United States. He was the CEO of Ford. The stock went up 1,837% when he was the CEO, and he had a 97% approval rating from every employee in a union company. You've met Alan, just an amazing human. So I said to Alan, of all the people I ever coached, I spent the least amount of time with the union and improved the most. So I made a chart. On one dimension was time spent with Marshall Goldsmith. The other dimension was called improvement. There seemed to be a clear negative correlation between spending time with me and getting better. So I said, Alan, the way this chart looks, you never met me. You'd really be good. What should I learn about coaching from you? And Alan said, he taught me a lesson that changed my life. He said, your whole message in this coach is great customers. You work with great people. You're going to win. You work with people that don't care. You're going to lose. He said, never waste time with people that don't care. Only work with great people. And your mission should be helping great people get better, not fixing losers. Hey, that was not done in coaching before that. I mean, Alan not only changed my life, he changed the whole field of coaching. Coaching was all about solving problems. It wasn't about helping great people get better. And today, I'm very proud of the fact that you know my book triggers 27 major CEOs endorse the book. Why am I so proud of that? 30 years ago, no CEO would admit to having a coach. They wouldn't have ashamed or embarrassed to have a coach. Well, today, these are great people, many of whom you've met. When they say, I need help, it's okay. I have a coach, it's okay. So I'm really, really proud of that. So learning number one for me is work with great people. And Alan also said, don't make coaching about yourself and only your own ego and how smart you think you are. Make it about how great they are. Well, again, I'm always ranked number one coach. Nobody knows if I'm a good coach or not. Why did I get ranked number one coach? I get number one clients. And really, one thing I'm proud of, I may or may not be a great coach, but nobody's got better clients than I have. So to me, that's secret number one, work with great people. So I'd say (laughs) that's a great lesson of life. The next great lesson of life was something from Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker taught me a lesson that I've repeated probably a thousand times to amazingly brilliant people who didn't get it. And if you just get this one lesson, it's going to help you have a great life and be better at influencing reality. Learning point from Peter Drucker, number one, our mission in life is to make a positive difference, not to prove how smart we are and not to prove how right we are. That is such a deep point that almost none of us get. We get lost in proving we're smart and proving we're right. We forget we're not here on earth to prove how smart we are or right we We're here to make a positive difference. Learning point number two from Peter Drucker. Every decision in the world is made made by the person who has the power to make the decision. Make peace with that. Not the smartest person, the best person, the fair person, or a wonderful person. Decisions are made by decision makers. Then he said, if I need to influence you because you have the power to make the decision, and I need to influence you to make a positive difference in the world, there's one word to describe you. That word is customer. One word to describe me. That word is salesperson. Customers never have to buy salespeople have to sell. Sell what you can sell, change what you can change. If you can sell it, you sell it. You can change it, you change it. You can't sell it or you can't change it. You just take a deep breath and let it go. Let it go. Don't waste your time and energy on what you're not going to do. We're here to make a positive difference. Only put your time and energy where you can make a positive difference. In my book, Triggers, I have a a great question. Am I willing at this time? to make the investment required, to make a positive difference on this topic? If the answer is yes, do it. If the answer is no, don't waste time, move on. That That is just a really huge breakthrough. And I've coached people. For example, one guy was 41 years old, private equity company, KKR owns his company. You know what he says? Well, they can't tell me what to do. Oh, of course not. You're 41 years old and Henry Kravitz can't tell you what to do. So they figure out how much it cost to fire the guy. A couple million bucks. They don't don't care about the two million bucks, which is a pain in the butt. So I said, talk to the lad. So I (laughs) I said, Joe. Uh, you know, I explained this to Peter Drucker and he said, well, they can't tell me what to do. I said, yes, I'm going to help you. Yes, they can not tell you what to do. You see, fool, it's their money. It's not your money and it's their money. And they can tell you what to do with their money because it is called their money. And now I'm going to tell you what to do. And if you do exactly what I say, it may save your sorry, but if not, I got to go to New York and tell them I can't help you. You need a better coach. There is not a better coach. So you are just screwed. What's it going to be? <laughs> well, that was 12 years ago. He totally changed his life. He would tell you that's the best moment of coaching he ever had. Stayed with the company 12 years, had a great success. KKR loved him, he was very successful. Just needed a little uh, ego adjustment. And then the final thing, number three, you mentioned three, is feed forward. I love feed forward. And I te- it's a Buddhist concept. Buddha said, only do what I teach if it works for you. And feed forward, you learn to ask people for input. Listen, thank them, don't promise to do everything. And then tell them, you're going to do what you can. And Feed Forward is kind of the essence of my stakeholder-centered coaching. I teach everybody to ask for input from everyone around them, listen to them, think about what they say, thank them, try to get better, and don't judge or critique what they say. And you know, one of the greatest proponents of this is someone you know very well, Hubert Jolie, who was also one of the great CEOs of America, turned Best Buy around. And he has everyone in the company do this. So anyway, those are three things. Uh, One of the things is that um, Peter Drucker learning, which is a great learning. Second is the Alan Mulally learning of it's not all about you. It's all about them. And the third is feed forward.
1: Spectacular. I know listeners are furiously writing things down. And don't worry, you can replay the recording when it comes out and you'll be able to replay this. It's so fabulous. Um, we, uh, we have a dear friend, uh, Gary Ridge, CEO of WD 40, who coined the term learning moments instead of mistakes, but we all know Marshall that, um, you know, it's our missteps, if you will, where we really learn the most. And sometimes, um, that can be hard for, especially for leaders, senior leaders to do. I'd love to hear some of your learning moments, perhaps some embarrassing moments, um, not that we need to to prove that you are a true human, but I imagine this could be somewhat hilarious.
2: Well, you know, the one I've already told you is my Bob Tannenbaum moment where I pointed out how screwed up all the Los (laughs) Angeles people were because they tried to impress others all the time. That turned out to be just a great moment in my life because it really, he taught me a great lesson and it wasn't a lesson I could have ever understood intellectually. He had to kind of feel it in the gut. So he, he let me have it in the gut where it really helped. And My most embarrassing moment is, well, two most embarrassing moments occurred ironically when I was doing a very good deed. In 1984, I went to Africa when they had the famine relief campaign with the Red Cross. And I watched a lot of people starve to death. And on a serious note, I have a picture in my library and it's in my book, Triggers, of me kneeling down. And there's a woman kneeling down and she's measuring the arms of little children. And if their arms are too small, they're gonna die anyway, so they get no food. If their arms are too big, well, they're not hungry enough, they get no food. If their arms are in the middle, they get food. So I had this picture, it's in my library. I look at it every day I'm home. It's just a reminder of this could be you, be grateful. Just be grateful. So that was a great experience, but it led to my two most embarrassing moments, or two of my most embarrassing moments. So anyway, I come back from Africa. And I'm on the cover of the local newspaper, the La Jolla Light. You know, local La Jolla man does good and goes to Africa and helps poor people. Very chic thing to do at the time, by the way. So I felt very uh, hip and in vogue. And so I, Sam Popkin, my neighbor, who's a professor at the University of California, in San Diego has a little reception for me. So he gets up and pops off about, I'm a good humanitarian, do a good herb, blah, blah, blah. So I'm, now I give a little talk about helping others. I'm all full of myself. So there's this group of people after I you know, quit giving my little speech and they sit around and we're chatting, chat, chat, chat. And then, you know, a few of them kind of fade away. But there's one old man that I was left over there. I, I said, I'm sorry, sir, I, I didn't get your name. I'm sorry, I didn't get your name. So he, he looks at me and goes, so my name is Jonas Salk. <laughs> that was probably the most embarrassing moment of my life. I've going, holy shit. I'm sitting there bragging and popping off about helping others. And I'm talking to the guy that cured polio. So that was a great, <laughs> that was a very, very humbling experience. Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. My name is Jonas Salk. And, you know, and one thing you've seen in our hundred coaches is it's, it's very humbling. Yeah. Some people in that group, I mean, Jim Kim has probably saved 20 million lives. So what you learn is showing off and trying to prove how great you are may not be always such a good plan because you really need to think who is in the audience. And then and the second experience came from the same thing. Then I did all this volunteer work for the Red Cross, so they made me this volunteer of the year, the Red Cross. There are like 10 volunteers a year in the United States. And unfortunately I was the last one to get announced out of the 10. It was so embarrassing. They all get up like, well, you know, Jim was black and they discriminated against black people, but he helped the Red Cross anyway, and he worked at nights. And, and now we're so proud of Jim because he hung in there in spite of our problems. And this 85-year-old man <laughs> stumbles up there. <laughs> this is Mary, and she's blind and crippled. And she's still working every day for the Red Cross. <laughs> and she wheeled, They wheel her out. And it, it was just like story after story after story of these saint-like people. And then they had me and they said, and now here's 32-year-old management consultant, Marshall Goldsmith from La Jolla, California. I'm going, oh, God, <laughs> don't do this to me. <laughs> so, it was so embarrassing because I thought I felt like such an idiot after being after, you know, being called in after all these people. So those are a couple of learning points. And I guess I see this play out all the time in our 100 Coaches because we have so many distinguished people in that group and so many brilliant people that really, it does a good job of keeping everyone's ego in check. If you just read the bios, you're probably not going to show off very much.
1: <laughs> you know, Marshall, I was thinking earlier, this, I never made this connection because this the notion of the say it's skillfully. Um, you talk about people like the things that we find annoying, you know, we're, we're talking about all these other people, but they're actually a reflection of what's within. Um, and I, I use that all the time and say it skillfully because in order to, to be able to interact with other people, you've got to be in good relationship with your own self. And, and lots of what you just said, sometimes it's really hard to confront ourselves. Like we don't like it. We really don't like it in ourselves. We blame it in all the other people, but it's really first starting within And um, I just made that connection to what you said. It it really is foundational, I think, to the coaching piece, because, you know, we we're all we're not perfect. We're perfectly imperfect. And you got to come to grips with that first. If you're within yourself, if you're going to be able to really interact with others um, in a way like you, where you really are trying to genuinely help them.
2: Um, You know, back, back to say it skillfully. One technique that I find is very helpful in this is just ask people a question, why are you saying this? When they start talking, why are you saying this? And oftentimes they're being self-righteous or preachy or whatever. You know, we say, why are you saying this? Well, this is bad. Well, okay, there's a million things in the world that are bad and people are starving to death and all kinds of stuff why is this particular topic? So why are you so excited about this? And why are you so self-righteous about this? And usually when you get down to why are you saying this, first, there's the surface reason, like me talking about people in Los Angeles and their problems, which I may or may not have been accurate, doesn't matter. But why was I saying it? This. Why am I fighting this battle? Why am I self-righteous about this? And usually if we can do that, we're much more likely to be rational. Once we can look in the mirror and ask ourselves, why are we doing this? And then really confront ourselves. We usually can learn most of what I'm saying. is not about their problem. It's mostly about my problem.
1: Yeah, that's exactly spot on. So I uh, so getting to say it skillfully. I just have to say, I recall early on, right? This first video, second video, they were starting to gain traction. You said, Molly, you're really onto something here, and I really remembered thinking, Wow, Marshall thinks there's something here, and that was really for me, Marshall, a, a, a vote of confidence to kind of stick with it because it was a little bit, to your point, kind of creating something out of nothing. Um, so I'm, you know, thousands of executives you've worked with, you know, and. I'm wondering how skillful you found them, you know, meaning how positively and productively they could interact with themselves, their peers, those they've reported to, those they work for, you know, without naming names. would love to, to hear some of these maybe top unskillful moments.
2: Well, you know, I'd say that answer is it just really all depends. Uh, One person who I think you know very well is Hubert Jolie, and Hubert would tell you, he read the book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, and of the 20 bad habits, he thought he had 13. (laughs) I'm not sure he was actually that bad, but he was not a warm person. He was ex-McKenzie. He was analytical, always brilliant, of course. He was smart, a great business person, but wasn't warm, wasn't sociable, wasn't really kind about people. And, you know, he just wrote a book called The Heart of Business. And, and you know, it's amazing how he changed. And so I, you know, basically, as Alan said, almost everyone I work with, if they want to get better, they can. If they're dedicated, they can learn. Some people I work with, like Alan, I have to say, he he gives me far too much credit for helping him. I would say I learned about 20 times from him what he learned from me. So it really, I'd say, depends a common, the common, most common problems I have in dealing with executives are winning too much. You know, I'm uh, winning too much, having to be right, having to prove how smart you are, all that kind of nonsense. And it's not surprising because in our lives, we've taken test after test after test. We've taken thousands of tests and we had to prove how right we are over and over again. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure, Molly, you've been tested thousands of times. It's hard to stop doing this. It's hard to stop proving how right we are. It's hard to stop proving how smart we are. And it just takes discipline to realize, like Alan taught me, he said, look, for the great achiever, it's all about me. But for the great leader, it's all about them. You've got to learn to let go of that, you know, aren't I smart routine? And it's very easy in theory. It's difficult in practice. Now, one thing you've seen in the 100 coaches, though, is kind of the opposite side of that. In my book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, most of the issues I talk about involve what I'd call overpromotion, promotion over over-proving yourself, trying to be right too much. Many of the coaches have the opposite problem. They don't promote themselves enough. Uh, they have trouble with that. They have trouble getting out there. They have trouble being assertive. And so in many cases, I have to work with them on some very different issues. And in my new book, The Earned Life, I talk about this, and I talk about proving yourself. And proving yourself when it's not going to help you make a positive difference is dysfunctional. Not proving yourself when it is going to make it would help you make a positive difference is also dysfunctional. So the key is not that proving yourself is a good or a bad thing. The key is: is it related to me making a positive difference in life? And so, you know, and as you've heard, Molly, you've heard me do this in team settings is I ask people, if you became more famous and more influential, would the world be worse off or better off? And people say, better off. Then I say, well, do you ever feel uncomfortable trying to be more influential and famous? They say, yes. Has this inhibited you from doing it? Yes, they have. Then I say, what's more important to you, being comfortable or making the world a better place? Get over yourself.
1: No, I remember me. I remember earlier on you looked at me. You were the one I would say very firm with me. You said, Molly, I got two words for you. Be famous. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. Okay. I got it. I got it. I got it. <laughs> I remember it was like, okay, I've ignited. This is the number one executive coach. He's at me now. I got it. Okay. Done. Um, well, I love that you segue to this earned life because you know, you've done so much already, but I know you've got a really cool portfolio of different projects going on. So would you share with folks, you know, a little sneak peek on some of the different things you're working on?
2: Well, my new book, which will be out next May, is called The Earned Life. It's done at the copy edited phase right now. And in this book, I talk about the concept of it's a most of my books are Buddhist oriented. Part of Buddhist philosophy is every time I take a breath, it's a new me and the idea of the earned life is looking at life as a series of constant reincarnations and we constantly re, re, need to re-earn our lives happiness we need to re-earn happiness we need to we need to re-earn happiness relationships and life isn't a thing of i'm going to get there when i have this achievement It's a series of constant reinventions. So the the book talks about how we constantly just reinvent ourselves as we go through life and that that's a a good thing. So I talk about, you know, basically learning to make peace with what is, forgive yourself for previous mistakes and then how to move on and say, all right, who's the new me I wanna create? And realize that we're constantly in this recreation process and don't stereotype ourselves. Don't say that's just the way I am. As long as you say that's just the way you are, that's probably just the way you're going to be. But if you don't want to change, that's fine. If you do want to change, quit doing that. So in the book, The Earned Life, I talk a lot about how to consistently go through life in this re-earning process. And Bob Dylan had a good quote. He said, he who is not busy being born is busy dying, which I think is a great way to look at life, that we're constantly being born.
1: I will look forward to that uh, that book. Um, when you write books, you know, for folks who haven't written and you obviously have oodles of experience and they might be curious, how do you, um, how do you get the ideas and what's the process that you go through?
2: Well, I mean, I've done a lot of books. I think actually it's up to 46. A lot of these are edited books or maybe more technical books I've written for myself of the 46 books I've done. I think four, uh, six were bestsellers, three New York Times bestsellers, and and then one mega bestseller. Most of these books were purchased only by my mother, my father, and associated relatives. So you know, although I've written a lot of books, mostly mo- nobody bought most of these things I've done. On the other hand, the big, big ones I've done. Uh, the secret of writing a New York Times bestseller is find someone who can write. So the three best-selling books I've done, I didn't write these books at all. My friend Mark Ryder writes the books which is not a secret, his name is on the cover. It's Marshall Goldsmith and Mark Ryder. and the contents, I'm the idea guy. I come up with ideas, I talk, we put it on tape, he writes, we edit, we go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and we end up with a book. So he's also my agent, so we split all the money 50-50. We have just a wonderful partnership and working relationships. We've done three books together, You know, all mega big sellers, and we're working on our new book, and you know he's a great agent. For example, um, he said, "You know, Marshall, this next book—I think we should call it Triggers. Triggers. How do you like the name Triggers?" I said, "That's the stupidest name I've ever heard. Triggers, Somebody forced like <laughs> or something. What a dumb name, Triggers. I can't even believe you came up with that idea. It's so stupid." He said, "How stupid is it?" I said, "It's idiotic." He said, "Well, it's just over the publisher, and they offered me one point two million dollars for advance for a book called Triggers." You know what I said? I love the name. <laughs> it's a fine name for a book. I'm glad I thought of it. Well, you know, it's good to have friends. And he is just a great writer. And I'm, I'm a good writer, too. I'm not putting myself down. I'm a very good writer. I just can't write as well as he can. So we just have a wonderful partnership. And uh, we, you know, good buddies and friends and uh, and work together. Uh.
1: It's really, really is joyous, folks. Um, Marshall's creative process, I watched him in videos and I, it's just really fun. And I, I just have to say that is a, a thing about you. There is an uplifting, there's a smiliness, there's a make it happen. And that positivity is infectious. Um, you know, let's have a little fun here. You know, you've, you've had this great career that you created, like you just made it up. Um, if you were, if you had a different career in life, like regardless of the skill you actually have, like what would it what would you choose? What would it be like what's another dream job Marshall would have
0: Oh
2: well, there might have been several for me, for example, you know, Molly, on a serious <laughs> note, if i I could have had the life of a degenerate rock and roll star with screaming fans and all of this popularity and as a young man with thousands of women in love with me, would I have traded in my career as a leading executive coach and thought leader for that decadent life? The answer is an unqualified yes on that one. (laughs) How about Broadway star? Would I be a Broadway star if I had a choice? Yep, I I would have definitely gone with that. So the reality is you know, I like entertainment and having fun and all that stuff. So there's a lot of things that I would have been happy to have done. Uh, the reality is I don't have enough talent to do it. And what's good for me is I'm just good at what I do. I just have, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, a unique set of talent that would seem to work with my life. So that's why I like what I'm doing. I'm, yeah. Would I have done something else? Sure. I have a funny story. Uh, Curtis Martin, who you met, I love Curtis. National Football League Hall of Fame, just a brilliant guy, very deep member of our hundred coaches. And Curtis is with Jim Kemp, and you know Jim has a simultaneous MD from Harvard and PhD in anthropology, and in five years, and was president of World Bank and does all this stuff. So Curtis says to Jim, you know, Doctor Jim, um, really, I feel so intimidated by you. Uh, you know, you're this brilliant guy and I'm some football player, athlete guy. So I don't even deserve to talk to you. I said, Curtis, did you know Dr. Jim played football? He goes, no, I didn't. I said, he did. He was the starting quarterback on his high school team. He said, well, Dr. Jim, that's great. I said, yeah, he never won one game in three years. (laughs) They lost every game. So I said to Curtis, Curtis, you think you want to be him? If he had a choice of being a pro football player, he would have dumped Harvard in five seconds nobody gave him a choice. So, you know, when we look at people and what they do, it's good to think, well, maybe, maybe they like their life, but that doesn't mean their life is better than mine. just different. You know, Molly, you're in the hundred coaches and you've been on a lot of calls with some amazing people and they're just different.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's this, this notion of embracing it and not uh, judging it and being in the moment with it. And, you know, you've taught all of us, if look at, look around and who can you help? Uh, And it's a really great, it's a really, really great way to go folks. It it may seem kind of scary. It's, it's really, it's just awesome.
2: Well, you know, you're part of a big, big element of my life, which is the hundred coaches. And, you know, we, I went to this program with Isha Bursell and, she asked me who my heroes were, and they were kind and generous people. or great teachers who I've talked about many on this on this call. And, and she said, you should be more like them. And I decided to adopt 15 people, teach them all I know for free. And the only price is they get old. They have to do the same thing. And so I'm thinking maybe I sent a, made a little video for LinkedIn. I'm thinking 100 people would apply. And as you know, over 18,000 people have applied for this project, 100 coaches. And now we have 300 people. And just the people are amazing people are you are one of the people and it's just an amazing amazing group of people and it's it's a big part of my life so let me ask you a question what's it been like for you to be part of this group
1: oh it's been humbling it's been inspiring and um and it's just it's really uh i'm just filled with gratitude for like every moment every person and it's um it really if you have changed my life this group has changed my life and you know i i feel very blessed you know we've got a lot of stuff in the world and i to be able to i feel very light uh i fly out of bed smiley just about every single day and it's in no small way due to you you know so um and and i've chosen a path i think in some ways you could i could be sad i could be you know not so happy with things but i'm just like you know what um, I'm game on, your showtime thing, you know, who can I be for others and and that's helped me be a better me for me. Yeah yeah, it's been it's been really amazing. You know, I will tell folks that we are talking to the only human being that I know on the planet who, would probably would say he's overappreciated. Is that fair, Marshall? I've heard you say that. Would you that say you're funny. Over-appreciated? I went to a program
2: with uh, Chester Elton and Chester asked a question. How many of you think you've gotten too much recognition in your life more than you deserve? So i raised my hand. He said, <laughs> he said he have done this with a thousand people. I'm the first person that ever raised their hand. Well, actually, I don't see that as a negative thing about me or I'm not being excessively modest. I mean, I mean, how much recognition has I've had? Let's say number one leadership thinker in the world—it's a big world. Number one executive coach in the world for myriad years. Uh, you know, New York number one New York Times bestseller. You know, I've had a chance to work with these just godlike people. I mean, how much recognition have I received in my life? Tons. Well, I'm—I'm I'm not that arrogant to believe like number one coach in the world. Well, how do I know I'm number one coach in the world? There's a lot of other coaches. I'm sure many of them do a fine job that probably many times better than me. Just nobody knows about them. So I don't feel, I do feel like I, st- I have an degree in math. So just statistically, I know I've been over-recognized. Let's take Amazon. Half the books in Amazon sell zero to one copy in a year. There's like millions of books. I'm not thinking my books are better than those millions of books. I just got lucky. People read my books. They know who I am. So I feel like, yeah, I have been way over-recognized. I don't say that to be modest. It's just kind of a mathematical fact. I'd have to be the world's most arrogant person to think I wasn't over-recognized. So, yeah, I think I've been way over-recognized. I don't think that's a negative thing. To me, that shows I'm good at marketing.
1: Yeah, there's no judgment here on it at all. I will ask you, just because I I do this often with folks, what do you most appreciate about your own self? Uh,
2: Make peace with what is.
1: That is a great takeaway from our chat, make peace with what is. Uh, Marshall has modeled for us folks being insanely present. We had zero preparation for this. A an extraordinary groundedness. Uh Marshall, you are generosity personified. And I appreciate you. I thank you for your lifetime of work helping people live better lives and being a big part of the solution. So if I might be helpful, I am here for you. I'm cheering for you. Love you tons.
2: Uh, you know, my mission and coaches is real simple, help you have a better life. and You know, to me, my feeling is if I can help you in any way, you help the world a lot. So if I help you even a little bit, you're doing a lot to help the world. And that's my contribution to the world.
1: Thank you, my friend. Can't be too soon before I see you. You take good care. Thank you. Okay. My thought for the week is threefold. Every time I take a breath, I'm a new me. Let it go. And do it with me right now, folks. Everyone raise one arm in the air, wherever you are, rotating your wrist a little bit, exhale a big breath, let it go so that you can be happy now and here. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Marshall's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm sharing for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life.
3: Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem.